going to work. You take this jump, you do your prepping, you do your praying, you do your planning, and then you just got to go for it. And if God doesn't show up, it's not going to work. It's putting yourself in a position where you need God to show up, and that's a beautiful place to be. And so that's where we are right now as a church. We're taking a leap. We're taking the next necessary step in our growth and in our life as a church. We're going to be moving into a new building in 2020. Okay, good. We're still excited about that. We're still excited about that. Yeah, great. That's a wonderful thing, and we're looking forward to that. A lot of work that needs to be done, so great. Let's do it. Let's get to work. We're excited about that. And so as we bring this series to a close, we're going to be talking more about Nehemiah's story all throughout this Leap series. We've been sharing a little bit about Nehemiah, our friend from the Old Testament. He's a good friend from the Old Testament. And so our story, not my story, but our story has some parallels to Nehemiah's story, which is why I've been looking at this book of the Bible and looking at his story. Our story parallels his in some ways. I mean, Nehemiah went back and he had to rebuild a wall for his people. We need to go back and we need to rebuild this building for our people. And so we're going to be looking at that. We're also going to take a look at how Nehemiah's community has some parallels to our community. So there are some interesting parallels there as, as we go along the way reading about Nehemiah. Several years ago, I, um, I received some advice as a pastor. Um, you see, um, one of the things that pastors do is we do weddings on occasion. Sometimes we do funerals. Um, personally, I prefer weddings. That's just me. Um, but we have these opportunities where you get to speak to an audience and it's one and done. All right, it's not the normal congregation. It's a situation where you're going to see a group of people. You don't really know much about them in most cases. You've got to give some kind of a message, some kind of a message of hope or some kind of a message of love it's a, if, it's, if it's a wedding. I mean, talking about love is appropriate if it's a wedding. Um, and so that's, that's what you do as a pastor. You have these unique opportunities. And I was taught that what you want to do is whenever you have an opportunity to talk to a new group of people that you might never see again is you need to preach the gospel. On those occasions where it's a one-and-done situation, you need to preach the gospel. Now, if you're not familiar with what the gospel is, you might want to write this down because it's a pretty big deal, okay? The gospel, let me just break this down for you. In fact, the word gospel means good news, right? And I feel like that's kind of an understatement. It's great news. But the gospel message is this. It's the message of God's love and how much God loves us and he wants to be with us. He wants us to, to join him in heaven when we die. He wants to have a relationship with us in the here and now, and he wants that relationship to carry over into heaven. And God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son into the world. That son's name is Jesus. And Jesus performed this miracle for us. He died on the cross for our sins, and Peter explains to us that he somehow took on our sins in his body on that cross, on that tree, and he died there for us. And then he rose from the dead on the third day. And we're taught in Scripture that everyone... Everyone who puts their trust in Jesus and what he has done for us will not perish, will not die, but instead will receive eternal life. That's like great news, right? That's great news. And this gospel, this gift of eternal life is available to everybody. All 60,000 of our neighbors, this message of the gospel, this gift of eternal life is made available to everybody in your circle all your friends, all your neighbors, all your coworkers, and all we have to do is accept the gift. And that requires humility. We can't trust in ourselves. I can get myself to heaven. I can get myself, I'm a good enough person. I can do good. We have to stop trusting in ourselves and not trust in our own morality and not put our trust in religion or not put our trust in anything other than Jesus. We put our trust in Jesus and we will be saved. Boom, that's the gospel message. So I was taught, if you get an opportunity just to talk to a group of people and it's the only time you'll ever see them, give that message. Well, guess what? 
A few years ago, I was reading the book of Matthew, which is in the Bible. Um, I highly recommend it, by the way. I was reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We call that the Sermon on the Mountain. It's a time where Jesus gives a sermon on a mountain. <laughs> I guess I didn't need to explain that. And so Jesus is teaching there, and it's an extended teaching time, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can read it today before kickoff, so if you've never read it before, please check it out. And it's this teaching time where Jesus explains some things and he speaks to the people so practically. But here's what I noticed when I was studying this a few years ago. Jesus, during this teaching time, does not explain the gospel. Did you ever notice that? Check it out. I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. I'm not LeVar Burton. You don't have to take my word for it. Check it out for yourself, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and see. He does not teach the gospel. He doesn't say, by the way, my name is Jesus. I'm the Son of God. I'm going to die for your sins. You put your trust in me. You'll have eternal life. He didn't say that. Now, elsewhere in the Gospels, he does explain that. He does teach and explain the Gospel. But on this occasion where he's got this large group of people, and this is probably very early on in his ministry, you know, the guys who wrote the biographies of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they didn't make it their point to record everything in chronological order, which makes things a little bit difficult to interpret. But we think, a little bit, yeah. But we think that this teaching time happened in the first year of Christ's ministry. It was early on in his ministry, and he does not, in this time, in this preaching time, explain the gospel. And the question is, well, why? Why not? You had this opportunity. I mean, what kind of evangelist are you, Jesus? In fact, that came up in our Bible study this last week. He's like, he's kind of a miserable evangelist sometimes, isn't he? Sounds like blasphemy saying that. But shouldn't you be about, like, sharing the gospel message? Now, here's the thing. Whenever Jesus does something that's counterintuitive or, or counter to our, to our expectations of what he would do, we have to ask the question, why? Why did he do it that way? And so often, as you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke, and John, you will realize that Jesus does things counter to how we would expect them to do them. And again, we just have to ask the question, why? You know, we would expect Jesus, if he is the Son of God, the Messiah, he should go present himself to the temple and prove himself to the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but he doesn't do that. Well, why not? You have to ask that question. And so often throughout the Gospels, Jesus will heal somebody, and then he'll say, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody? Well, why? These are good questions to ask and seek after the answer to. And so my question is, when this Sermon on the Mountain, why, why didn't you explain the Gospel? There's a reason for that. Here's what I think, and it's not just me who thinks it. Here's what I think. I think Jesus was setting the stage for the Gospel. Several years ago when we were in Kenya, we attended a, the, the church that we visit while we're over there, and we heard the pastor there give a message on cultivating the soil, right, cultivating the soil. Now, I don't know much about farming or gardening or planting stuff. I don't have any, I don't have any green thumbs whatsoever, okay? I don't know much about that. But apparently, if you're going to really take this whole gardening or planting thing seriously, before you plant your seeds, you have to prepare the soil, Depending on what you're planting, maybe it's a, it requires like a high-maintenance situation. You've got to really take care of that soil. Prepare the soil before you can plant the seeds, right? And if there are impurities in the soil, you've got to pull them out. And make sure you, Does that make sense? Those of you who know this kind of stuff, you've got to pull those impurities out so the soil is ready. And so that message that we heard when we were in then Kenya was about how we need to do that very thing. If we're going to share the gospel, yeah, we have to do that. But we have to give people some context for the gospel, we have to prepare the soil. And that's what we've been trying to do here with some degree of success for about seven years as a church. Prepare the soil. Yes, we're sharing the gospel message along the way, but we need to prepare the soil of people's hearts. Is that, that sounds like the soil of people's hearts. You, you know what I mean. We're trying to do that along the way. Now, how do you do that? There's lots of ways that you do that. There's acts of service. That's a big way. Just to show up and help people. 
to rake leaves for our neighbors in need. We do things like that, right? And there's sort of this imaginary Christian scenario that we, we you know, it's a fantasy that we tell ourselves, oh, we're going to do this act of service, and then that person's going to become a Christian on the spot, and that's, how, that's not how it works, right? It usually takes more than one act of service or one act of kindness. It usually takes more than that. There's a cumulative buildup to these kind of things, and so there's acts of service. There's words that need to be spoken, words of truth, and a big part of our job as a church cultivating the soil and preparing people for the gospel is explaining to them who God really is. There are so many misconceptions about God out there. So many. If we could task on that, if we could focus on that, identifying these misconceptions and correcting them, sharing people the truth of what the Bible has to say about God, if we could do that much, that that would go such a long way to helping people understand and have some context for the gospel I mean, that message that I rattled off to you about God loving us and sending his son, it's like if you don't have any kind of context for that, it's so tough to make sense of that, so tough to make sense of that message. Now, in our community right here, among the 60,000, we have a unique situation here, maybe not unique across the, the nation, but unique to this time in history. We've got a lot of people, our neighbors, right, people in your life, people in your circle of influence who are a generation removed from church, a generation removed And so some of the people in your life, they had some kind of a church experience as a kid, and then they said, no, thank you, and then they were removed from church in that way. But some of the people in your lives, in fact, I would would guess a lot of them, they never had any kind of church experience whatsoever because their parents went to church when they were kids. They said, well, this isn't worth it. I'm not doing this. And so we have a whole generation of people that have no context or no connection to the church. And you know what? I'm not saying that's bad or good. I'm just saying that's what is, and that's what we have here in this community. In fact, I'll tell you a little secret as a preacher. Sometimes it's easier to work with someone who doesn't have some church stuff in their past. Because here's the sad state of affairs in the ridley Interborough areas, that we do have plenty of churches in this area, but not all of them are teaching about the God of the Bible. In fact, some of our churches, and this is just, this is alarming, this is scary, this just shouldn't be. Some of our churches are presenting these misconceptions about God, and so to, to let, all right, I'm going to stop being polite. Some of our churches are lying about God, Right? They're telling people, well, here's the God that you want, and so we're just going to tell you this is, this is what God is like because here's what you want to hear. Well, that's not, that's not how it works. And so here we are in this community with a lot of people who are a generation removed from church, and we've got some misconceptions. Everybody has an idea of who God is. Everybody has an idea. Some people have, have thought about it, and if you ask them, what do you believe about God? You went to some of the people in your life that want nothing to do with church, they want nothing to do with Jesus. If you said, what do you think about God? If you ask them that question, some of the people in your life would have a coherent, logical answer to that. They give you a paragraph. Here's what I believe about God. But there's a lot of people in your life that if you ask them that question, what do you believe about God? They have an idea, but maybe they haven't thought it through yet. Just some kind of vague notion or vague idea. They say, well, I don't know. I never really thought about it, but here's what I think about God. Everybody has some kind of idea about who God is. And it's our job as Christians to present to people the truth of who God is in Scripture, not the God that we want him to be, but the God as, as he is in Scripture. This whole book, the Bible, is God revealing himself to us. And so there are lots of misconceptions about God. Here are two big ones. Here's one, and we've talked about these in the past, and we'll talk about them again in the future. Here's a big one, that God is out to get you. That's one of the misconceptions about God out there, that he is out to get you. Going through school, some of you are students now. Did you ever have that one teacher that just like every little thing you did, take off points, take off points, take every little thing you did wrong, right? <sighs> Junior year, my math teacher, are you kidding me? I liked the guy personally, but this guy was like, no, he didn't notate this. I'm like, I got the right answer, give me a break. Just looking for something to mark you down on. Have you ever had teachers like that? 
Do we have any teachers like that in the room? <laughs> you know what that's like? It's like, oh, just out to get you. At least that's how it feels, right? And some people see God in that way. It's like, well, that God, the whole Christian God, the God of the Bible, he's just a God that's out to get you, and he's looking to kind of take points off of your score, right? And he's watching your behavior, and he's just out to get you, and he's not for you. He's against you. And so why would anyone want a relationship with a God like that? And let me tell you the truth. When you read the scriptures, that's, that's not God at all. And I feel like there's so much potential that, that could happen, so many wonderful things that could happen if we just could clear up that one misconception about God. He's not out to get you. The God, at least the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is on your side. He is for you. He is rooting for you. He wants what's best for you. I've watched people, I've watched their faces change as I've shared that message at weddings and funerals, right? What? He's for me? The God of the Bible is for me. If we could just share that truth, not make, we don't have to make up anything about God, just share that truth, how much that could change a person's heart and make them that much more ready to receive the gospel when they hear it. There's another misconception about God kind of at the other end of the spectrum, is that God is an anything-goes type of God. God is filled with love. God is love. It says that in the Scripture, and that's true. God is ready to forgive and willing to forgive, and he's got all sorts of compassion. That's true, too. We read that in Scripture. But some people latch onto those truths or latch onto those ideas, and they say, well, you can just live however you want because God's going to love you no matter what. Sure, that's true. You know, as a father, I tell that to my daughters. I say, you know, I love you all the time. Do I love you when you make good choices? Yes, Dad. Do I love you when you make bad choices? Yes, Dad, right? But I'm not pleased with the bad choices, right? And so our God is not an anything-goes God because an anything-goes God, it's kind of like the, um, it's like the cool mom on uh, Mean Girls, right? I'm a cool mom. You can do whatever you want. That's not, that's not how it works. Our God is not a cool mom, right? Or, that's, that was weird. I shouldn't have said that. That, that <laughs> felt wrong. As soon as I said it, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. But it's like, it's, like, it's like the teacher that lets anything go, right? I remember back a few years ago when I was in high school, there was a substitute. I don't know his name. We just called him Sideburns. You can guess why. There was a substitute. And whenever he would show up, you're like, oh, we got Sideburns today. Anything goes. Anything goes. Do whatever we want. He's not sticking to the, to the lesson plan that the teacher left. We can do whatever we want. That's not God either because that's not love. The idea of an anything goes God and a God of love, they're incompatible. As a father, I love my girls enough to give them boundaries. As a father, I love my girls enough to warn them. If you do this, there are consequences. To warn them about the fact that we live in a broken world. And we are broken people living in a broken world. And so there are boundaries we need to live with. And because I love them, I share that with them. And that's the God that we meet in Scripture. The God that loves us enough to say, be careful out there. The God that loves us enough to say, stay within these boundaries. Don't do those things. You're going to end up hurting yourself and others. That's the God that we meet in Scripture. Now, to some degree, our community, our 60,000 people are very similar to the 42,000 people that Nehemiah worked with, the 42,000 people in his community, because those people were a generation removed from God in a lot of ways. So many of the people that Nehemiah worked with and he had them working on the wall and was trying to show them about God, so many of them, most of them, the vast majority of them were born in this captive state, right? 
Once upon a time, about 70 years before Nehemiah, the, the Babylonians came and they, take the, they took the rest of the Israelites, the ones that they didn't kill. They took them to Babylon, and then the Persians overtook the Babylonians, and the Persians said, you guys can go back home. But 70 years had passed. It was an entire generation removed from God. And the previous generation, you know, their parents... They were the ones that, that really did all the bad stuff so that God punished them, right? And so that previous generation, they weren't exactly lock and step with God's will either, right? Most of them were the ones who were responsible for, for worshiping false gods and letting their hearts stray to other gods. And so God gave the consequences to the previous generation. So we have a, a generation born in this captivity, and they didn't have a lot of context for who God is. Now, there were exceptions to that in that generation. The works, Nehemiah was an exception, we get the idea that Nehemiah was brought up in a household where they were taught the will of God, taught the words of God. In Nehemiah's prayer, we see him praying back God's own words to him. So he was familiar with the law of Moses, right? But a lot of the Israelites weren't. And so Nehemiah is an exception. Ezra was an exception. Zerubbabel was an exception. I didn't need to list Zerubbabel. I just like saying that. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Probably saying that wrong, but it's fine. Zerubbabel. Let's all say Zerubbabel. No, no, no. All right. Thanks. So you had these guys that were an exception who knew, had some kind of context. They were taught by their parents. They were taught by their grandparents. And they said, listen, here's why we're in Babylon. Here's why we're in captivity. We failed to keep up our end. God promised us he would love us and protect us if we served him and followed his law. We did not. We chose not to, and now we're suffering the consequences. So some people had the context. Some people understood that. But so many of the 42,000 Israelites that went back to Jerusalem, so many didn't have that context. They had some stories. Maybe the name Moses meant something to them. Maybe they knew a little bit about, okay, well, we were a nation born in Egypt, born in slavery. Maybe they knew something. Heard about some miracles, some kind of sea that was parted, some kind of tablets of stone. Maybe they had some, some vague stories passed down to them, but for the most part, a generation just like us, just like us, a generation removed from the things of God. And so Nehemiah, what's he known for? He's known for, well, he rebuilt a wall. Fantastic, good for him. But it was bigger than just a wall. He had to work with people, work with the people who didn't have context for who God is. And so Nehemiah sets out and does this work. And last week we read about the fact that he does this thing. He surveys the damage. He looks at the wall and how, you know, the state of destruction. Then he assembles the people and says, we're going to rebuild this. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. So he gets the people working. He gets them organized. And they face opposition internally and externally. There's some opposition that is faced. In fact, they get to a point where they got to you know, have their weapon in one hand and their, you know, their trowel in the other hand as they're doing this work, and they have to watch out for each other. And as this is going on, it's also revealed that there was some, um, some injustice that existed among the Israelites. You had some people that were rich and some people that were poor, and it seemed like the rich were taking advantage of the poor, and there was a famine in the land, and so the poor people were having to go lend out their land or mortgage their property to the rich. And Nehemiah's like, guys, stop. Stop this. And Nehemiah had to explain to them, we're, we're in this together. We're going to win together or we're going to lose together. And there was a miracle that happened among the community where debts were canceled and people got that vision. We're on the same page. We're in this together. And so they're working together. They complete the wall. Fantastic. Now, as we've said before, this wall, it was a physical thing. It did mean something physically. It had to rebuild a physical structure just like we need to rebuild a physical structure just over there. Absolutely. But the wall meant something. There was a spiritual implication to the wall too. You see, you look back at the nation of Israel and their history, and so what they had done before that physical wall around the city fell down, their spiritual walls were compromised. 
And God gave them laws to live within, and they broke down the walls of law. The walls of law? Sure, why not? They broke down those laws and started worshiping other gods. They were seduced by the gods of other nations. They lowered those spiritual walls before the physical walls crumbled. And so this physical wall, it meant protection for them. It meant something to them. But there was also a spiritual implication of rebuilding the spiritual walls of God around this community. So the wall is finished, and people were forced to work together as a community, just like we will be forced to work together as a community. And if you've ever been on a mission trip, you know what it's like to work with a group of people day in and day out. You know how they can start to drive you nuts after a short period of time, right? It was just me, right? When we go to Kenya, by the time we get there, I'm like, I don't want to see these people anymore. I've been on a plane for a day with these people. But that's how it is. You start to get on each other's nerves, and you work it out. You push through, right? But you had stuff. People had to get real with each other. People had to get real and get past their stuff and work together to accomplish this thing. And they did. you imagine how they felt? We did it. We did it. And the whole while, while Nehemiah is being faced with criticism, what are you doing? Look at this wall. If a fox cl- climbed on this wall, they fall down. Ha, 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 Nehemiah. You know what he said? I'm doing a good work. I'm doing a good work. And he needed to remind himself of that. He needed to remind the people of that. Yeah, there's other things that he could have been doing, but this is what he focused on for that time. I'm doing a good work. And you better believe it. We're going to face opposition as we go into there. Hey, maybe we won't. I don't know, but just be prepared. That's why we're praying. That's why we're praying. That's why we're praying now. But there's going to be opposition. There might be ridicule. Why are you guys spending your time doing this? Because we're doing a good work for now. This is it. This is the work that God has given us to do. And for the city of Jerusalem, that torn down wall was a symbol of their disgrace. And I tell you what, listen, for us as a church, when you look at the state of some of our church buildings in this area and how they're deteriorating, what what does that tell our community about the things of God? There is a spiritual significance in our rebuilding of this property, of this church building that says something, that will say something to our community. So many churches are in a state of disgrace, both physically and perhaps internally, spiritually. And we are here to solve that problem. That's what we're here to do. And so they build the wall. Fantastic. They've finished building the wall, and then they celebrate. Well, I think that's appropriate. Let's celebrate. This is a big deal. So they gather together. And I'm going to read for you what happens in in Nehemiah chapter 8. So I'm going to start earlier on, verse 1. So the wall's complete. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns and all the people came together as one. Yeah, they're one now. There were one people now. They came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. These people who had never heard the words of God, they never heard them. They were about to hear them for the first time. This is a big deal. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Guys, ladies, kids, if you're old enough to understand, bring them in. Let them hear this. Let them hear this. Maybe they had nursery care somewhere. I don't know how they worked it. So they did that. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And the people listened attentively to the book of law. They were learning their own history. They were learning about their relationship with God. Their misconceptions that may have existed about God were being broken down in light of the truth. You know, some of these people carrying around this idea that God was just out to get them, or that God just doesn't love them, or all these misconceptions were being broken down as they were exposed to the truth of who God is. His word being read, 
There's power in the words of the Bible. There just is. It's the word of God. There's power there. Verse 4, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. This is kind of interesting. It's the first time we see this kind of thing happening in the Old Testament. And in some ways, what they do here, it looks pretty similar to what we do in in modern-day church worship services. So this is interesting. It's a new thing. He stood on this wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him were some guys whose names I can't pronounce. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All of the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Have you seen that in some churches? They do that. Was, okay, time for the scripture reading. Let's all stand. Okay. You don't have to do that. You can't do that. It's a great thing. I mean, it's up to you if you want to. Do, huh? Next Sunday, let's see who stands up when it's read. One weirdo is going to remember that and stand up. Good for you. And so you can do that. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing when people do that. And so they all stood up to hear the words of God. Verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord. The great God and the people lifted their hands and responded with amen, amen. So this is more than just him reading from the law of Moses. There was a time to praise God, worship him, just like we do. There's time to praise God and worship him. Responded amen, amen. They bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, a bunch of guys whose names I can't pronounce. Verse 8, they read from the book of law, making it clear and giving them meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Have you had this experience? If you went to church and you were younger, or you sat there, you heard someone read the Bible, and, mm, you know what this means? I have no idea. It doesn't matter. We're just here to hear it, right? A lot of churches work that way. You're not meant to understand it. It's complicated. It's the Bible. You just sit somewhere, and you listen to somebody read it. This was not that. Ezra took the time and explained things along the way. Here's what the Word of God says, and here's what it means. Here's what the Word of God says, and let me give you some context for what this is about. He explained it as he went. Verse 9, then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were all instructing the people said to him, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of God. They were weeping. Tears of sorrow in some cases. Tears of repentance, tears of joy intermingled. They were learning about themselves and their relationship with God. They were learning about who God really is. Now, there's, but a lot has been said about the captivity and how that changed the dynamic, changed the nation of Israel forever in a positive way. There were some positive changes that happened in that captivity, but it didn't really happen in captivity. It happened after they got back and realized, wow, God promised us all these things would happen. They heard from the law of Moses, and the law of Moses told them, if you follow me, I will bless you and protect you. If you disobey, I will turn you over to your enemies. And they had to hear these words and realize, wow, this all happened. God is real. He really does love us. And we've repented and he's restored us. Wow. Overwhelmed with this to the point of tears. Learning about who God really is. All these myths and misconceptions just dissolving in front of them as one community. Learning about their God and how much he loves them and cares for them and seeing, looking around. He has restored us just as he's promised. So they have to say to him, guys, this is a day to celebrate. I get that you're crying, but this is a day to celebrate. And they had to keep saying that. Verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Let's make this a day of celebration all around. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He's saying to the people, guys, think. If, if, I know, look at the impact it's having on your lives right now. Look at the impact this word is having on your hearts right now. But just imagine what God is experiencing right now. Imagine his joy right now to see his people restored, 
to see his people truly repent. Imagine his joy right now. That's real. And let that joy be your strength in this day of celebration. A whole nation, 42,000 people, give or take, transformed at this point in time by the word of God. Look at the parallels between our community and that community. Do you believe, or is it just me? Do you believe that we can have the same thing happen here in the ridley Innerborough area? If we can break down these myths and show people the truth of who God is, that there will be that heartbreaking joy of repentance and sorrow and, and celebration all intermingled. Do you think we can have that happen here? I believe that. We can do this. And as we set about the work of rebuilding this building, okay, we got to keep in mind, this is not the end. To have a finished product, that's great. But that's just the beginning of the beginning. <laughs> and then we can start. And then we can aggressively burst down these myths and share the word of God with more and more people. This is our reason for being a church. This is our destiny. Where do you come in? Over the past several weeks, I've been challenging you. I've been asking you to pray over this, and I hope that you still will. That's, that's where you come in. You pray. Pray over this project. Pray for your people. Pray absolutely. Where else? What's your role to play in all this? The whole community played a role. What's your role to play? Well, yeah, there's going to be, maybe there's going to be a financial donations. Maybe there's going to be a sacrifice of time. Maybe, I don't know. What is God putting on your heart? What is God calling you to sacrifice for the sake of this project, for the sake of this good work? There's going to be something. He's already speaking to a lot of you in this room. What's he saying? You just, listen, just tune me out and listen to him. What's the sacrifice he's asking, commanding you to make for the sake of this good work? But here's the biggest thing that you as an individual can do. You can allow God to break your heart for our 60,000 neighbors. That's a lot. That's a lot. All right, let's make that number smaller. Just take a look at the people in your life. All right, maybe, maybe, you're very, maybe you've got like 60,000 Facebook friends. If that's you, God bless and I do it, right? Maybe you've got 60,000 followers on Instagram or whatever, but let's, let's talk about real people in your real life. Focus on them. All right, 60,000 is a big number. All right, focus on the people in your life. Let your heart be broken for them. Some of them know Jesus as their Savior. Great, okay, great, wonderful. Pray for them, God bless. But what about the people who don't yet? Allow your heart to be broken for them. Pray for them. Yeah, there's gonna be time to write checks and build stuff, that's fantastic, whatever. But the most important thing that you can do right now is focus on them. Pray for them. That's how we'll change our community. That's how we'll transform our 60,000 neighbors is by praying for them, focusing on them. It's all relational, right? Like I said, that number, 60,000, that's overwhelming. Okay, think about relationally. Who do you know that needs to have some misconceptions about God disappear, who needs to see the truth of God and who he really is? Who in your life needs that? Pray for them. Pray for them. Be invested in them. Well, throughout this series, I've mentioned the fact that I think one of the big problems in our community is the apathy that goes on here, both in the church and outside the church. There's so much apathy. Not genuine apathy, but a forced apathy, a chosen apathy. It's so tough to care about other people. Come on. It's so tough to be personally invested in somebody else's life. Can you do that? <laughs> Can you allow yourself to be personally invested and stop lying to yourself, guys? Come on. We all do it. We've got people in our lives that we love, and we kind of convince ourselves, well, I think they know Jesus, and I think it's okay, and they're just on a different, they're just, stop lying to yourself. <laughs> Can we stop doing that? 
and be, allow yourself to be concerned for the people that you love the most in your life. If you could just get to that place, wow, big things could happen. And the beautiful thing about this is you're not on your own. You're not on your own to do this. Pray for your people. And then as a collective, as a church, we together share the responsibility of breaking down those myths, cultivating the soil, and sharing the gospel. Here's what's up about our God. You know this. He cares more about people than property. <laughs> he cares more about baptisms than buildings. Isn't that fun? It's a little fun little thing I made up. I was proud of that. Yeah? You can write that down. He cares more about people than property. He cares more about baptisms than building. This past week I met with somebody. He's like, well, you're getting a building. I said, it's just a building, man. It's just a building. It's the people. It's the people. In Nehemiah's day, it was the people. In our day, it's the people that matter. And the people will remain our focus as we go forward as a church. And I believe, maybe it won't happen in one day or maybe it will, I believe that we will see a transformation, a continued transformation in this community as we break down these myths and present the truth. Here's a fun fact about the book of Nehemiah. It's essentially the last book in the, New in the Old Testament, chronologically speaking. It's the last thing that happens. It's the last events that take place that set the stage for Jesus. In our day and age, at this time, we need to set the stage for Jesus' return. He's coming back. This is our, Nehemiah had his task, we have ours. We need to set the stage for Christ's return. When's that happening? Later today? I don't know. Will he come before we finish the building? I don't know. 40 years, 400 years? I don't know. But we need to do what we can to set the stage that people can receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who we are, and this is our collective mission together. Let's pray over this. Father God, you are just as alive today as you were in Nehemiah's day. You are filled with love. You were filled with love then, and you're filled with love now. You're filled with compassion then, and you're filled with it now. You love our 60,000 neighbors. You love the people in our lives who are far from you. Let us share your love. Let us share your care. Free us. Free us from our chosen apathy. Allow us to care. Father God, break our hearts as your heart breaks for our 60,000 neighbors. Break our hearts for the lost people in our lives. We thank you for your promise of eternal life to all who receive you as Savior. We thank you for giving us not only salvation, but a wise way to live in this broken world. And Jesus, we thank you for giving our church the opportunity to share your gospel with more people in our lives in our new facility. And we thank you for giving the people of First Baptist Church of Ridley Park a willingness to sacrifice for the sake of advancing your mission. Father, throughout our church's history, you have given us favor with many kings. People in positions of power, wealth, and influence have contributed to the life and growth of this, your church. And once again, God, we ask you to grant us favor with the kings the people who have the means to rebuild and renovate the property you have given to us. Lord, show each one of us how we are kings. Show us how you would have us sacrifice in order to rebuild this church property and increase the presence of your gospel in our community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Thank you all for coming out today. And... Uh, if you're new with us, please uh, please.